Welcome back, my spooky bitches. It's the spooky rip jean mom. Um, I should probably tell you guys where I've been recently, considering my last episode I posted was June 27th, which low-key was um, almost a year ago. Um, and part of the reason that is, I think I told you guys that I was going to Indiana to visit my mom and my dad and my baby, Paisley, and I were going to spend a couple weeks out there uh, to watch my little brother show Dairy Cows, do his 4-H stuff, go to South Carolina with my other family. And then I was like, but I'll still be posting and I'll still be researching and all that. However, when I got there, I was rather sick. Um, and I took a pregnancy test and it came back positive. So spooky babe number two is on the way. Um, and I was so sick up until about like 20, between 20 and 24 weeks, like could not really do a whole lot. I ended up staying in Indiana until the beginning of September. And then my dad and Bailey's dad met in the middle and Jim picked me up and I went to Texas and I spent a little bit of time in Texas and then South Carolina with um, Bailey and his family and we were there for his uncle's wedding and then um, we came home and I was starting to enter the second trimester feeling better um, but taking care of a toddler and trying to not throw up um, was very hard. So when I started to feel better I needed to get my life together, so um, the house had to be re-put together, nice thorough deep clean, and then we had people visiting, and then the holidays. So I took a lot of time to just research so I could record a couple episodes at one time and be able to help, like, have things out, because I am due March 23rd. It is February... 15th and so yeah um I only have like a little bit more than a month to go they think he could come early like the 17th of March um because he does just not really have too much room to, so that's where I've been so I've done a lot of research hopefully I can with like the next couple weeks get them all out planned out so then that way when I do have spooky babe number two um you guys aren't waiting around for episodes again and then I can also use that time to catch up on any research that I need to do so that's where I have been I'm so sorry to leave you guys hanging at the beginning of January I was like watch out for a new post and then I changed my mind and decided that I was gonna do it this way um, so that's pretty much all I have going on. Bailey got me a new microphone. It's a Yeti microphone, except when I tried to record, it wasn't picking up my sound. Have no idea why. So I broke out old reliable again, and here we are. Um, and I think that's the only business that I have. So we are going to jump into Kentucky. So we are going to start with the standard gravure shooting. Um, the Stanford Gravure was a building that was made for, like, paper. It's basically like the office. You know, it's just like a paper company. Um, 
and it was doing fine. It was founded, like I said, 1922. It was doing fine up until about 1982 when it had reduced revenues, which caused an employee wage freeze, which then the company was sold in 1986. The customers were obviously the retailers and they were going out of business. And the papers, there were there was like a paper shortage during this time. Um, it was in Louisville, Kentucky. So because of this, what the time was, you know, the 80s, there was cutbacks, stress, and obviously difficulties. And that's pretty much all about this paper mill company. However, we're just going to jump right into the events that took place on September 14th, 1989 at 8.30 a.m. So a man walked into the plant looking for, you know, the bosses, the CEOs, all that fun stuff. He had an AK-47, two MAC-10s, and two pistols. And you might be like, wow, Peyton, you sounded like a professional talking about guns. I have absolutely no idea what truly... I know what, I know what an AK-47 is, and I know what two pistols are. But if you showed me what two MAC-10s looked like, I would have no idea. I've no, I, I wrote down in the notes exactly what to say because I have no idea. I, none whatsoever. Um, he ended up walking around for 30 minutes and just firing at random employees. I also have gotten back into writing my notes instead of like typing them. So if you hear pages turning, that's why. Um, don't come after me for that. Just don't. Do not. So this man went up to the third floor and he began shooting. He first shot Sharon Needy, which ended up killing her. She was the receptionist. He shot Angela Bowman in the back. She was left paralyzed. Um, he ended up shooting James' husband, who was killed. Forrest Conrad, Paul Warman, John Steen were all injured. They were shot and injured. Uh, John Steen was actually shot in his head and his stomach. Paul Saley was killed. Stanley Hatfield, David Sadenfaden, sorry if I pronounced that wrong, was injured. And they did not work at the paper mill. They were just two electricians from a different company fixing a machine that had been broken. So then this man, the shooter, went to the stairs and left a bag, a duffel bag under the stairs and went to the basement. And that is where he ran into an, a man named John Tingle, who came up to investigate why he was hearing gunshots. And the man who was, you know, obviously the shooter, when asked what he was going on, said, I told them I'd be back. Get away from me. So John obviously moved. He didn't want to get shot. And the shooting continued where Richard Barger was shot in the back. Except the shooter apologized to him because he wasn't meaning to shoot Richard. Then he went back to the press floor and he shot anyone who tried to stop them, stop him. He ended up killing James Wibble and Lloyd White. He then went into the break room, killed all seven workers, 
uh, then emptied his magazine, reloaded it, and started firing again, where he ended up wounding Kenneth Fentress. One of the seven workers he killed was a man by the name of William Gnote. Um, then he pulled out Sig Sawyer, whatever type of gun that is, and sh put it under his chin and shot himself. After 30 minutes of firing, he fired 40 shots. He killed eight people. He wounded 12 people. And then one person had a heart attack because they were scared. And before I tell you who the shooters are, I want to go back through and list all of the victims who ended up dying. Richard O. Barger was 54. Kenneth Fentress was 45. William Gnote was 46. James G. Husband was 47. Sharon L. L. Needy was 49. Paul Saley was 59. Lloyd White was 42. James F. Wibble Sr. was 56. And then, of course, the shooter. So, when police come in, they identify the shooter as a former employee named Joseph Westbecker. And I'm just going to call him Joseph. So, you might be wondering, how did we get to this point? Um, because, Peyton, we're only 10 minutes in. Three minutes of that was you telling us that you're pregnant and that you've been slacking. And the other you know, six minutes, was the whole shooting. So let's talk about what brought Joseph to this point. So he was born April 27th, 1942. He was 13 months old. His dad died when, well, he was 13 months old when his dad died. He was a construction worker, and his cause of death was he fell at work. Like, I think he fell off a building. So he was raised by an only child, as an only child by his mom, she was only 16 when she had him, and so his, her family helped take care of him a lot, but for a year, he did end up in the orphanage. He was extremely close to his grandpa, but then sadly, his grandpa passed away when Joseph was four. So, people describe Joseph as not a good student. He had dropped out in the ninth grade, but he did go back and get his GED. In 1960, he got a job at a paper company and was a pressman. This was not the same one he just shot up. In 1961, he ended up marrying his wife, and he had two sons, James and Joseph. 1971, that is when he started at Standard Gravier. He was described by many people now as determined, hardworking, and reliable. But then in 1978, he got a divorce. There was a long, long custody battle. And he ended up admitting himself for psychiatric treatment, which is a big deal for it being, you know, 1978. Uh, mental health wasn't really talked about a lot back then. So then, in 1983, Joseph gets married a second time. And I really just left out his ex-wife's names because... One, when I was researching, there wasn't a whole lot about them. Their names weren't really mentioned. Uh, and one article was, that's the only place I could find his kids' names. So I'm just going to leave his wife's names out. Um, in 1984, though, things were not going well for him and his new wife. 
because they ended up getting divorced. And this caused him, it doesn't cause him to become suicidal. I think because he had saw psychiatric help in the past, he's been suicidal, but this just kind of re-triggered it. And then he became reclusive. At this point, he's separated from most of his family. And he just lived a really lonely life. In 1986, when the standard was sold, he was assigned to a mechanical folder. And this is much different than what he had been doing beforehand. Um, before, you know, he was just like, a, I think he was a pressman, sold the paper. But now he's assigned to a mechanical folder and he complained to work and to the higher ups that it caused him stress and undue pressure he did request to go back to his old position, but they denied that. So this caused him to grow very hostile towards the new management, and he started to believe that there was conspiracies aimed to harass him. And then he began to complain about the policy changes at the company. He said that, you know, he was being exposed to Toloon, it was causing memory loss, dizziness, he had blackout spells. So in May of 1987, he filed a complaint with Human Relations Commissions, where he told them that he was being harassed and discriminated for psychological state and deliberately put under stressful conditions. So they did an exam to see if there was any sort of backing to his claims and they said that he did deal with depression and manic depression which then proved that they were being discriminatory and they put him on Prozac. On August 1988 Joseph ended up quitting work and he was put on long-term disability. In February of 1989 there had been an agreement to be re-employed as soon as Joseph recovered enough. So between August 1988 and May 1989, this is when Joseph bought the AK-47 and the pistols that were used in the shooting. Now, before the shooting, he got a letter saying his disability had been canceled. We're going to talk a little bit more, go back in a little bit more detail about his mental history. So he had been in and out of psychiatric hospitals from 1978 to 1987 where the doctors there did determine he had a psychiatric illness. His diagnosis was that he suffered from alternating episodes of of deep and manic depression which caused him to have confusion, anger, anxiety, and several attempts to commit suicide. The doctors at the hospitals said that he was a threat to himself and to others And in a CBS 60 Minutes, quoted, In 1984, five years before he took Prozac, Joseph's medical records show that he had a convo with his doctor. And this is how it went. Have you felt like harming someone else? Yes. Who? My foreman. When? At work. Medical records also show that he had tried to kill himself 12 to 15 times. Wild. And years prior, he had threatened more than once that he was going to, in quotes, kill a bunch of people. 
So then when we fast forward to him working at the Standard, he had told numerous workers, like co-workers, that he was going to bomb it. And he considered hiring an assassin to cons- to kill several executives in the company. So this is something that he has put a lot of thought into. I don't think the actual act had been thought out the best. But I think he he definitely was thinking about, you know, hurting and killing people that he worked with. He had also discussed all of this with his wife before divorce. And then um, a co-worker said that back in August of 1988, that he would be back and wipe the place and get even with the company. He told his aunt that he wanted revenge and upset with how things were handled, but she didn't take it seriously because he had made empty threats like this all the time. A co-worker was even said to have quoted, This guy's been talking about doing this for a year. He's been talking about guns and reading Soldier of Fortune magazine. He's paranoid and thought everyone was after him. And this was said all after the shooting. Also, I paused that to like re-listen to make sure the quote sounded great or good. And I realized that it kind of makes it sound like I'm underwater, which is weird because I'm recording where I normally record. Um, however, my fan is going because I get really hot now. Love joys of being 34 weeks, almost 35 weeks pregnant. Um, so I'm really sorry if it sounds like I'm underwater. I'll figure out how to fix this. This may be a Bailey issue and not a Peyton issue. Um, so then three days before the shooting, Joseph told his psychiatrist that a foreman had forced Joseph to perform oral sex on him in front of his coworkers to get off the folders, the mechanical folders that he was assigned to. And then the only thing that the psychiatrist really said about that was in her notes, Prozac question mark. And now we're to the day of the shooting where he shot for 30 minutes and killed 40 or fired 40 shots in 30 minutes. Wild to me because that's like more than one bullet a minute. So when police realize who the shooter was, they went and searched Joseph's house where they found a shotgun, a 32 revolver, a starter's pistol, and Time magazine featuring Patrick Purdy, where he killed five kids and injured 30 people. So because he shot himself, there wasn't really a trial. Nothing really, you know, happened because of it. So they, the families of the people who were killed and then the wounded families sued Eli Lilly and Co. Company. I wrote Co. Um, because they produced the Prozac Joseph was taking. And they, doctors believe that the use of Prozac contributed to what Joseph did. And the jury decided 9-3 to three for Lily. And then years later, Lily had a settlement with the plaintiffs in exchange for setting legal pre- precedent. Joseph has buried in the Cave Hill Cemetery. And that's it for him. Um, I know it's not... When I looked up, like, Kentucky's most notorious serial killer, like, prolific, 
A lot of them had done crimes in other places, and Kentucky was just like a pit stop. This was one of the few places that I could actually find that um, Kentucky was, like it was only in Kentucky, and not just a drive through but I am thinking, because Kentucky is held to, as like a fun episode, Kentucky has the longest, I don't want to say raining, because that sounds weird, but like the longest running of family of incest, the blue people, um, their skin's literally blue from the blood. So I want to do... I think a case about them as a fun one to kind of make up for this one only being like 20 minutes long. I think next week's episode's going to be a little bit longer because it's about Samuel Little, who is America's most prolific serial killer. Um, and he did kill in Louisiana, but he also killed in a lot of other states. So... Yeah, we'll find, we'll find out more about that. So, as always, thank you for listening. Go ahead and leave a review. Follow, subscribe, wherever you listen to. Do it. Um, and I will see you guys next week. Love you.